at Barclays, we then started creating our own tools, our own apps to be able to track with barcode each piece, like every single facade panel of the like 11,500 or so that, that are in the building, we're able to track from design to uh, manufacture, to delivery, to and finally to install. And so it's pretty amazing how you, you can keep this entire data set and uh, so it informs future projects. Welcome to Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today is a very exciting day. I'm joined by Luisa Mendez. Luisa is a senior associate at SHOP. She led the design and coordination of the Fulbright University Master Plan in campus design for Vietnam's first independent non-for-profit institution of higher education. She's also led the design of 475 West 18th Street in New York a high-rise condo project built completely from mass timber, right, structure. Um, she's also led the design and execution for Design Miami 2016, which is her background, a really amazing uh, pavilion uh, using novel 3D printing techniques uh, from the Oak Ridge National Lab and Wrench Technology. And she uh, got her Master's of Architecture at Columbia University. Full disclosure, her and I uh, were classmates. So it's just a little bias there. And she got her uh, bachelor's degree in design from University of Florida. Thank you, Lisa, so much for joining me today. Of course, thank you. Very excited about uh, the chat. So I think it would be really helpful to contextualize uh, for everyone your background. And, and if you can just provide us a quick blurb of like what's been your career trajectory so far. Sure, yeah. So um, prior to joining SHOP, I worked at a few firms in Florida. Uh, first, my first job was a very small firm in Delray Beach, focused on uh, single-family houses. And uh, my second job was at Oppenheim Architects in Miami. And there I concentrated on very large-scale master planning in Abu Dhabi and Dubai. So like completely different skills. And then uh, I went to Columbia University, as you mentioned, and uh, I actually entered the shop twice while I was still a student. When I graduated in 2012, then I joined officially. So I've been privileged to have very diverse um, kind of exposure to different projects in the office in terms of project type and project scale. So actually, my first project was a large-scale retail project in New York. And um, we took a site that was kind of a surface parking lot close to a waterfront that was totally underutilized. And uh, we were able to kind of reimagine what uh, an outlet mall is instead of doing the typically hermetically sealed big box. We instead argued for a network of uh, urban spaces that would connect and be kind of the, the stitch between the retail volumes. Also kind of addressing that waterfront and bringing life back to that waterfront. So that was my first official project. Then I, I was purchased, uh, I was part of the team that won the uh, competition for uh, the total building price. This was sponsored by the U.S. Department of Agriculture and at the time it would have been the uh, tallest timber tower in, uh, in the city. So um, unfortunately the project didn't continue for a series of reasons, but nonetheless, what we learned from that project uh, was incredibly useful. And so uh, we're still applying a lot of that knowledge to current projects. So um, 
you mentioned Fulbright University. Uh, that was an incredible experience uh, doing the master plan and also the first phase of the project. So we had the ability to travel to different parts of Vietnam, even though it was a, an independent, the first independent uh, university in the country. Uh, it was based on liberal arts. And so um, we wanted to make sure that even though we were bringing something from here, we the, the university ultimately is for the Vietnamese, so it's important that we would travel and start to understand the culture and the traditions and what they were looking for. So after Fulbright, I um, actually, sorry, I skipped one. I skipped the what's in my background, which is the pavilion. So that was in 2016, the Miami Pavilion, which was, you know, like in our previous pavilion projects, it's an amazing opportunity to explore a new material or a different uh, building technique. So in this case, we worked with two different collaborators with branch technology for the um, what you see on the screen, which is the cellular uh, fabrication of this 3D printed technology. And then we worked with Oak Ridge National Laboratory uh, with a different type of 3D printing that was uh, based on bamboo fiber. So it was a pretty, pretty incredible new techniques at that point. And then that was a challenging project because we had to think about not only the Design Miami Fair, which it's only about a week long, but the project also was going to move to another site in Miami for another two years. And so thinking about the components, like how they go together, how light they are, how they fit in tracks, you know, then can two people move them? All of those were kind of the parameters and the, um, the variables that we used to come up with the design. Uh, what you see is kind of the whole piece, but the way that we uh, made it into parts and how those go together was actually really low tech with zip uh, ties, which anyone can use. You don't need skilled labor to put it together. And it actually went really fast, you know, like assembling the whole thing. It moved to another site for two years. After that, it was in the, at the UN in Nairobi, and now it's permanently at the University of Nairobi. So it's wow. multiple lives, which is pretty cool. Zip ties are like the secret material that hold almost every pavilion together. I feel yeah. like, yeah, especially, yeah, especially, yeah, especially experimental ones. It's like the the zip ties are the core piece to it. Yeah, um, for sure. And it was it was interesting to combine the like super high tech of how it was actually manufactured to the incredibly low tech way of putting it together, and it just worked really well. How, how long how long did it take to put together in its entirety again? Oh, we had, okay, so this this was one of the biggest restrictions. We only had five days to assemble the entire thing. And it was two big pavilions. And so, and then, you know, like the design that goes around them, uh, we had kind of this whole playful environment of uh, beach with sand and other elements. So, but we, we finished on time that morning before everyone started going to the Design Miami Fair. It was up and running. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, and so the the work that you've been involved with at shop seems to, I mean, it, it, it branches so many different scales. I'm, I'm curious, like, if you were to describe shop in general, like, what would be the pitch you would give, a 30-second elevator pitch of, like, what shop focuses on? I guess, like, three three words uh, could define, or at least to me, like, the ethos of the firm. So we're multidisciplinary, uh, we're disruptors, and uh, and we embrace technology. So uh, the firm is 150 people right now, and um, it was really founded to harness the power of diverse expertise. You know, like the founding partners all came from different backgrounds, 
And I think that has played a big role in the way that uh, we embrace different fields influencing what we do. And so we're collaborators, but we're also known for being disruptors and to challenge conventions and to, you know, question accepted patterns of practice beyond what a typical architect would do. And since the firm was founded, it was modeled on this kind of new way uh, in, in a new unconventional approach to design. So we use technology and digital fabrication uh, techniques, but in a human-centered design approach for, you know, ultimately for the public realm. So the technology is, is a tool that allows us to still put the human first in, in the project. So I would say like, that's the pitch. And if I got you interested and I'll tell you more after we get out the elevator. <laughs> yeah, no, that's pretty succinct to say like there's like three pillars that the company is focused on. I think we can, we'll dive into a little bit about what disruption means later uh, for the firm, but I'm also very just curious to know more about how you fit into that puzzle. So what is your current role there? I, we, we, we kind of labeled it a senior associate, but I'm very curious, like what does that mean on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, no, I think it's, it's important that you ask because like titles mean totally different things depending on the firm. So um, so I my title is senior associate, but um, so I, I currently co-manage a residential project in the West Coast. Uh, the project's yet to become public, but what I can tell you is that uh, we will be using mass timber as the primary structural mm-hmm. system, and we'll also be deploying digital delivery as the method to communicate and manufacture the um, majority of the building components. And our, our team within shop is around uh, 12 people. So that's my role right now. Got it. And so you're, you're leading that project and that means design, that means just people management, team management, like what are your kind of typical responsibilities? Yeah, definitely team management. So for instance, like the way that teams are structured at shop it's typically there's there's a project director that's in charge of like overseeing multiple projects at the same time. And so a project director is kind of that main contact between the client and the firm. And they're also the ones kind of like crafting the contract, obviously with the direction of, uh, of the lawyers. And, uh, but, you know, like that's one of their primary uh, roles. Uh, there are other directors at shop that are more specialized, for instance, like uh technical directors that are making sure that, you know, our, our drawings or pyramid sets uh, make sense and they're cohesive and they integrate into systems how they should. And then well, there's like enclosures and sustainability directors that are uh, involved very early on in the process, in the design process. And so they're there not only to make sure that we're bringing innovation to the design, but also to make sure that the designs are uh, environmentally performing. So that's kind of like the high tier, right? Like project director. Then in a project like mine, uh, typically managed by the day-to-day people that manage it are the senior associates. And so um, because of the nature of mentorship within shop, we actually also have like a pretty close relationship with the client and we're involved in contract conversations. So that's great. You know, like it's not like you're isolated from those tasks. Then come the associates, which are designers who have typically been at shop or, or out of school for a few years. And so uh, they've acquired significant experience. And this experience might be pretty general and diverse, but there are some that actually specialize in certain skills. So for instance, in, in our project specifically, due to the nature of it, 
Uh, we have about two members that are pretty well-versed in like computational approaches mm. and then um, another one that's pretty, that has a lot of extensive enclosure uh, systems experience. And then uh, kind of the youngest are the designers and typically they're just recently graduated. But what's exciting at the firm is that, you know, everyone is encouraged to participate in brainstorming. And so if the designer or the intern really uh, comes up with the most interesting idea, then, you know, like that's what we go with. And so it's very much a collaborative thing. That's cool. So uh, great ideas can come from anywhere, basically, is the, yeah. is the way it's structured. So you mentioned in your description, it seems that you mentioned lawyers. I'm actually very curious, like, does SHOP have an internal legal team? Or is it yes. an external company that they work with? Like a lot no, it's, it's internal. Internal, cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you also mentioned that there's, the way you describe it, there's these centers, what some people might call like a center of excellence or a specific function that is cross-functional, right? So the sustainability group might be one that actually has a hand in a multiple different projects. It's a very matrix in, in that sense. And in that matrix, I'm also pretty interested to know if like, within your own team structure, are there people that are just solely dedicated to your project or are, is there also sharing of resources there in a sense or sharing of team members where you might have some of the, either maybe those specialists that are your team are also working on other projects as well? Uh, we have both. So, so we definitely have the core team that's uh, day-to-day and it's fully dedicated. And because of the size of the project, we need people that are just full-time. Uh, but then we also have the the other people with the more specific skills that mm. are plugging into multiple projects at the same time. Is that decision to have these team members, let's say, you know, in, in speaking in general terms, or or maybe with this project specifically, like, do you see, like, when is that decision made ultimately when it comes to putting the team together for a project? Is it? At the very beginning, there's a direction to say, okay, we want, we, we need some computational expertise on this project because we have an instinct that this is where we want the project to go or somehow like the project brief is helping you nudge in that decision, right? Because you might have projects that are, you don't see it as less of an ambitious opportunity, like an opportunity to be ambitious on the approach. I'm, I'm curious, like how, when is that decision made? Yeah, definitely. Like the decision is made from the very beginning when we're staffing the team, making sure that we're meeting the based on the goals of the project that we're that we have the right people. And so um, we also typically have kind of like a kickoff meeting with other teams at shop that have um, that have done similar project types or have deployed a similar uh, technique. And so. So we, we approach it from like a lessons learned within our own office. So there's, you know, there's an opportunity to uh, gain some efficiency. So we're not kind of like totally restarting from scratch. But, you know, like the fact that we have this specialized people doesn't mean that uh, they're the only ones doing that kind of work. <clears throat> like I mentioned, like at the beginning, mentorship is big at shop. So a lot of people that work under uh, this more specialized directors kind of like start acquiring the skills. And if it's in their interest, if it's something that they want to concentrate on, they can kind of like, you know, like uh, split that way a little bit more from away from like the general designer or associate and then kind of like hone the skills and then be a resource for multiple projects. So that that kind of self-direction, 
the way you describe it is very fascinating to me because it, it, it almost leads to the idea that when shop is hiring people, it's, it is actively looking for people that would want to have that self-direction, self-initiative to carve their own path in a way, right? It's mentorship, the way it's, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the way it's, it's sort of described, it's one in which it's, it's a two-way street in a sense, right? That there is the, essentially the, the person really has to define their own trajectory and they're going to find that, that support within the organization to help move them there. And it's not top down, right? It's not to say that like if, if I were just, uh, you know, just coming out of school and joining shop, it's not someone will predetermine for me, like, no, this is like your sort of trajectory within the firm. You can't do this. You can't do that. It really is like, no, I'm actually super interested in learning more about uh, maybe building dynamo scripts or something more, you know, robust. And I'm given that leeway. Is Would that be a fair assessment? Let's say that's how it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because you were very much not the type of firm that splits into kind of like two buckets, one that's more technical and, and the other one that's more design. But we, we still take, you know, a lot of pride in being generalists. And so somebody who comes at shop usually comes as just, you know, this journalist designer. And as you move through different projects and different teams, you can either stay that way, which is totally fine, or if you find a skill that you uh, love and you just want to keep kind of pursuing in that direction, then there's definitely an opportunity to do that. That's very cool. It's also interesting because the there's, I'm sure when you, with most architects, right, there's always the, 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 the healthy or unhealthy tension of, you know, you have a career path that you want to define for that is somewhat logistically already defined for you because there's the idea of licensure, right? You want to get, you want to be a licensed architect at some point, that's where you go to school. And so there's this path that you're on at the same time, there's, you know, the, your own preferences of what you might want to explore don't necessarily line up with that. Right. It might, it might be that you're really interested in just like almost becoming a pseudo software engineer within the firm where that is, you find out that that is really what you're passionate about. And that might actually take you away from being on site doing sort of like a CA work or, or doing anything else that might lead to a, a different path. And I'm just curious, you know, it, it's really, I don't know if it's like an actual observation or comment. I just find it, it's like fascinating, mm-hmm. right? That like the organization supports that in a way that I think is more authentic than offices that might not really think about that. I mean, I just know from conversations with people that, you know, they struggle with that personally and they struggle with that tension in, in that they might never be able to work on a project where they can get certain hours done for their, because it's just set up that way. And so, I don't know, it seems like shop is really nicely structured to advocate for the employee in a way, right? That they can, they can embrace that path to themselves if they want. Yeah, definitely. So yes, there's that ability to kind of move around and uh, and kind of like find what you're very interested in. But when you mentioned that, you know, like somebody who might be more interested in computational skills or the, you know, like learning digital tools really, really well and not necessarily go to the site, there's actually a pretty tight correlation between those two things because mm. ultimately like we're embracing all of this new um technology, like new platforms to ultimately build our projects in a more efficient um, way. And so the person that's working with the the tool that is allowing us to do that might actually still be interested in going to the site to actually, 
you know, like test that tool. Yeah. So it's, it's never in a bubble, but it's, it's very much connected. That's awesome. Yeah. And it seems like the, the teams are set up in a way where that is possible to do in the way that the, that person is embedded in the project. And yeah, of course, why wouldn't you want to actually see on site the impact of the things that you're working on inside of uh, connecting nodes together, let's say. So moving a little bit away from just like the, the maybe the core team side, I'm actually just very curious, like what does a typical week look like for you on any given day? I'm, I'm, you know, part, part of this conversation with best practice, we want to talk a little bit about like the, you know, really feel and kind of get more to the tactical side of like, what is it like to either work at a place like shop or work at, in, in your role specifically that can help inform people in their own day-to-day life or just, you know, add contrast to that as well. So I'm curious, like, what is it that you do on a, any given week? So it's a funny question because I never, you know, like it's never the same, which is the reason why I really love what I do because it's not boring. But so, I mean, obviously there's structure to meeting times, especially when it comes to consultants and clients, like we have pretty established meeting times, but everything in between is kind of more fluid, uh, which is great. So um, because our client and consultants are kind of all over the world and in different time zones, for me right now afternoons, uh, or for the team afternoons, it's kind of the best time where all of those schedules align. And um, so that leaves the mornings for our own internal meetings and um, and for, you know, like production time. So um, like for those internal meetings pre-pandemic, we would be either like pinning up on a wall on the corridor of the, of the office or kind of like be gathering around the physical model or being like, like looking at our projects in, uh, through a VR set. But now that, you know, most shoppers are still working from home, we have adapted and are now communicating through a bunch of like different digital platforms. So now for pinups, we've been using the mirror board, which has oh, worked cool. yeah. really well so far. We're using Google Slides uh, to generate the design presentations. And, you know, it's kind of been really great because the whole team can be working on it simultaneously. And it's, it's something that we actually had been kind of slowly adapting in other teams prior to, to the pandemic. But now it kind of like this, this is kind of the method that everyone is using because, you know, like if you're in a in design presentation, yeah. everyone that nobody else can be in it. So this is a great collaborative tool. And we've even extended this to um, consultants. So like mm-hmm. before we meet with a client, we might be crafting a presentation with a consultant at the same time. Like, you know, it's like cut so many back and forths. So it's, it's great. Oh, right before we started at um, the like work from home, because of the pandemic, we actually had just finished the space in a new part of the office. So we're shop is on the 11th floor of the Woolworth building in, mm. uh, in Lower Manhattan. And we we recently also have moved to most of the 10th floor right under. So within the space, there's a space we call Tranquility. And it's a perfect circle in plan. And it's uh, it's an immersive lab with uh, like 360 degree uh screen around you. It has six digital um, projectors in the center and uh, it's a multi-user virtual pinup room. So it's like a technology incubator, like where we do things like 3D scanning or AR. And, um, you know, like everyone was so excited to use the space. And then when it finally opened, we all had to go home. But um, we're recently now that people are slowly returning to the office we're now taking advantage of it and it's, it's pretty amazing. So some people can be there while others can be at work. The client is in another city. 
and we're still able to communicate through this tool and um, have this like 360 immersive screen where you can do site visits or or just simply like show the project. So it's, that has been pretty awesome. Yeah, that's fascinating. So we'll, we'll dive a little bit more into like technology, but it's fascinating it, that one of the outcomes of, of the pandemic ultimately has been that it's act, acted as a forcing function for the firm in the sense that now they've doubled down on, on collaborative tools, right? That are real time, like Google, Google Slides, which it's it just, it's fascinating because the, in many ways, those tools have been around for a while, like especially Google Slides and Miro to some extent. But now that you are now fully kind of embracing this, is there any, it doesn't seem like there's a world in which you go back, right? Like, like this seems to be in some ways a new normal, at least for how collaborative offices or how collaboration can play out in, in office work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think at the beginning, of course, there's that time of, you know, adapting to using a new technology and a new platform. And so uh, people who are work totally comfortable, including myself, with producing and in design definitely had a hard time those first few days. And then you get so used to it. And, you know, it's so fluid that I agree that I think we'll just be coming with like, we'll be keeping this new tools as uh the normal, I would say, after the after things go back to normal. <laughs> yeah. Now zooming, let's say, back into projects themselves. Like one thing that I'm, I'm very much interested in is learning about the way that goals are set up along projects and how is that ultimately determined? I mean, definitely the client, like they are the ones that are setting the goals in, in, in many instances. But then what's the, is there any education or any kind of back and forth that happens between what the client anticipates the goals to be versus what, you know, the team collectively is figured out to be actually like the real goals, right? I mean, sometimes clients and their advisors might have a very distinct vision of what it might look like, but then there's that, that kind of dance that happens where as things are uncovered, you know, goals might actually be reoriented or rediscovered and that could always impact contracts in some way, especially if, if that's part of the contract. So I, I'm curious, you know, in a general way, what, how does that play out with shop? And especially because shop seems to, again, with the three pillars, right? There's a distinct opinion that shop has when it approaches a project, whether it's that they're going to be disruptive with it or institute some sort of technology. Uh, and so I, I'm curious how, how that maps over. Sure. Yeah. And I would say like, there's, you know, there's different, uh, Kind of buckets for goals there there are kind of the values of the project and then there's more like data driven or time driven goals so um if we look at the values for instance like those are established from the very beginning and those serve as kind of a, a the, the structure or the datum from which we uh can measure if the project's you know staying true to the vision that we set out from the beginning what's interesting is some clients do have pretty specific goals Actually, some clients, typically bigger companies, have company goals that uh, we also, like, it's important that those get addressed in the way that we design. So it's not just, like, the product goals, but also addressing this, like, larger uh, set of company goals. But, uh, for instance, like, a goal can be, like, connecting to nature or connecting to a community or, you know, like, and, and then so as, as we keep designing in every stage of the process, then we, we come come back to those initial set of goals and make sure that we 
are actually like tracking and, and we're not kind of like dissolving or uh, watering down the idea. So that, that's important. And then there's like the more data-driven goals, which um, can be just like meeting a certain square footage or, you know, like all of those things, those are tracked in a pretty, uh, just through apps and, you know, and charts. And then when I think of like time-driven goals is, I guess the more obvious one is, the you know, like, like you have a deliverable, uh, you have phases. And so you, you have to kind of like put all this deliverable together and meet that time. But there's also the idea of the time that's controlling the like manufacturing of, of the pieces. And so what's amazing is that with all the data that's embedded in the this platforms that we use uh, in BIM, you and and also not not just the tool itself, but making sure uh, that from very early on in the process, we're we're working with the fabricator, and so that makes a huge difference in the way that we think about the pieces, uh, how they go together, how they get manufactured, delivered on site, and so there's there's a way that we can track that and at least anticipate some you know like the accuracy, the the amount of time that things are going to take. So like. In terms of the time goals, uh, that's a great way to do it. So with, with these different types of external goals with the clients, it seems like they're, are they always all the three of them are in play at the same time? Or is there, it seems like time-driven would be always in a kind of a play. But, you know, with, with some of what you mentioned with time-driven, it seems, especially like the logistics side of what you're describing, that could probably present... It's not that it's like a, a cart before the horse sort of thing, but in, or in my mind, I, 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 the logistics side seems like something that has to be addressed really early on, right? To then define the rest of the goals and how they fit into that, because ultimately, it's the almost like the other two can't really happen if that part isn't really addressed in the front. It's like can't even get to the value side, can't even get to like the uh, the data if we if we can't deliver the project in the way in the way that's best suited for the design, I guess. Do you find that tension to exist or is it actually like they can be a little bit more discreet from each other, not necessarily interwoven? Oh, no, I think that like the three are totally tied together. And it's kind of a dance that you, you know, you you balance through. So, yeah, I, I think like we, we can dream as much as we want in terms of the values and the goals, but it's really kind of like that time and data that ultimately make that happen. How is this? the goal-oriented nature of projects reflected back into the, the team structure. And so, like, does the team themselves have goals, whether it's personal, like, you know, career goals and whatnot, and that tie back to a project? And is that tracked in any way? Or is that, like, what, what's the, the cadence of that type of feedback? So when, when we put the team together, right, when, when we uh, first assemble the team, um, like, ideally, you're you're bringing people that are uh, excited about that specific project. And so, so I think as, as long as the goals and the ideas are very clear from the beginning and everyone shares in it, you know, it, it makes for a great working environment and, uh, and it's a very clear way to kind of like achieve that goal. I think this is easier when the team is uh, kind of like everyone joins it from the beginning because everyone kind of like, it's involved, it's responsibility, and uh, therefore kind of it's more embedded in, um, in, in, the, in the project. And so it's, I think it's really important for as a project moves along 
and you for some reason like start losing people or adding new people, that all of those new uh, members to the team get the same kind of attachment and, and understanding for the for the overall project goals. Because what happens sometimes is like you're you're busy trying to like work on something here, and so like it's it's really important to take the time, whether it's from management or or somebody has been in the project for for very long and understands the values and the and the goals to get those people engaged because otherwise then you start getting kind of like a fragmented structure where like some people totally understand why we're doing something and then some might not. So I, I think keeping those like very clear channels of communication, it's key. Yeah. Mor- morale is like one of the maybe underutilized and maybe overlooked managerial tools that people can have, right? I mean, it's like being able to get people aligned with the project in different ways and, and find, you know, because it could be that someone really doesn't care necessarily as much about what the product is. They just care about what the piece that they're working on is and they are fixated with that element. But being able to kind of tie that back to in a positive way to the ambition of the project and see how that, like their, you know, it's almost like management's a very individual thing, right? It's like you try to find from your team members what are the things that they gravitate to naturally and let them go, right? Like give them that, that kind of uh, ability to take ownership, leader, you know, form their own sense of leadership through that. And yeah, it seems like that's, that's a way, I mean, it's just, it's just something that I feel like is super, super important when it comes to. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like that's easier to do when somebody has been at the firm for, for a while. So like they've kind of demonstrated or they, you know, they're interested in specific things or they have specific skills. When it's new people, then uh, it's naturally like that time to understand what their interest is within the shop or I mean, that really at any firm might take a little longer. And so, but that's fine. You know, like that's a, that's a great way to go from team to team, understand kind of like different, different team structures and, uh, and different scales. And so there's definitely kind of like that, learning curve but um but yeah ultimately it's about kind of like growing within the firm but uh like keep like advancing your own goals but being part of this larger kind of network uh, structure and so if we we go back to the three pillars right and one of the things that we talked about was uh disruption shop is is very well known for a lot of its uh innovative developments around workflows, process, their green book in my mind is a great, is a great example and testament to that. And one of the things that, that they're well known for is digital delivery, the work you've done in, in some of the examples you mentioned, plus the firm collectively has invested a lot of time and resources into what digital delivery means and the future of it. I'm very curious, like what have been the lessons you've learned from throughout, you know, working in this and, and even define digital delivery for us, because I think some people might not be very clear as to what that means and be cool for you to set the context. But like, what have been the lessons learned? What are the challenges where, for lack of a better way, like where have things like gone uh, sideways or uh, just curious to see what, what you can teach us in some way? Sure. So in like super simple terms, the uh, like digi- digital delivery is moved from a more traditional 2D project delivery to a 3D way of designing and executing a project. Um, so 
it's the traditional tools that architects and engineers have used for decades to coordinate the delivery of projects uh, are they're just not efficient um, and especially when it comes to communication so by making this transition from uh, the like more analog to uh, to centralized tools we have really been able to coordinate massive amounts of uh, data among the trades involved so like not not just the design teams but really like the people who are ultimately going to build this. So we're, we're able to coordinate this at, at, the, at a very high resolution. And we can kind of like seamlessly move from a, from a concept model, so uh, like a 3D model, to a digital fabrication model, the digital twin, and then ultimately into manufacturing. So, you know, like this has been kind of the, in the DNA of the office since the very beginning. And, you know, like when you look back at shops, projects, if you go back to that green book uh, and look at the history of the firm, you don't really see a style uh, that gets repeated from project to project. But instead, you see kind of a, a process, like what, what we have in common or the projects have in common is an interest in uh, exploring this process and rethinking how we build buildings. So like all the way from the pavilion at Dunescape, uh, right, the, uh, the pavilion at PS1 back in 2000. Like, that was one of our first projects, and we, like, immediately were trying to rethink how we built this thing. And so the way that the 2D drawings were done was actually one-on-one uh, -one that came to the side. People assembled these two-by-fours, and there were, you know, like, no instructions, but, they, like, everything just was coming together by the way that this... Uh, kind of like fabrication drawings and assembly drawings rather were like they were just meant to be kind of like an Ikea kit of parts, right? Yeah, I was just thinking that, yeah. Yeah. So that was the first time that we uh, tested this method. Then it was the camera obscura in, uh, in Greenport. And look, again, all the pieces were um, like brought to the side. There were instructions like tabs that said like uh, A to B or, you know, like cut place here. And so it was kind of like a very didactic way of uh, putting together the building. And I mean, just the, the amount of resolution that you get on the side is, it's great because you've already done this in 3D in a very uh, kind of like controlled environment. So when it comes to the side, it, uh, it works really well. And it's like the fidelity is incredible. Then we did uh, Porterhouse, right, in the meatpacking district, where uh, we actually got pretty involved with the fabrication process, because uh, when you talk about challenges, right, like, this is a totally different way, and especially at that point, like in 2000, was a very different way to look at how we, as an industry, operate and get things done. So kind of a way for, for the firm to, to get going with this uh, meant taking a lot of risk and getting skin in, in the game and, you know, like sometimes forming uh, partnerships with the companies that are producing the, the facades or, or the components. And so uh, in this case, that, that was it. Like we had equity in the project. And so what that does is it gives developers kind of um, the reassurance that we're, we really believe in the process and that we're going to deliver. And so those were kind of the first opportunities to prove that. And as we keep moving more and more uh, from project to project, and they, they started discerning that, okay, that, that method actually works. It saves time and inefficiencies on the site. 
And so, you know, like we're, we're able to overcome those challenges. And then obviously we did it at a massive scale with Barclays Center in like 2008. I think it opened in 2010, 12. But um, at Barclays, we then started creating our own tools, our own apps to be able to track with barcode each piece, like every single facade panel of the like 11,500 or so that, that are in the building, we're able to track from design to uh, manufacture, to delivery, to, and finally to install. And so it's pretty amazing how you, you can keep this entire data set. And uh, so it informs future projects. So I, I guess the challenges that I see in this method is that like more and more contractors and, and clients, developers are getting more used to working this way. But I think still the biggest challenge is CD agencies because they, they still expect, most CD agencies still expect the analog 2D, like, you know, thousand page drawing set. And so in a way we're getting a lot of efficiencies in, uh, in terms of the actual construction, but when it comes to the whole process of permitting and um, I think and approvals, I, I think there's still a lot that uh, we could do to bring to bring those agencies to a level where they're comfortable operating in the 3D world. And I mean, it's probably not too far from from where we are, but but I think that kind of like complete this cycle, it would just be a great opportunity. Yeah, that that uh, that idea of the city agencies has been another variable or component into the digital delivery process. It's fascinating to me because if you think about city, you know, I mean, Shop is predominantly a New York-based firm. I mean, they've worked in global, but I mean, they they cut their teeth in some sense in New York. And what I'm curious is if it were possible to know in advance how open a city agency is to certain workflows, right? And that was publicly accessible. That would really then change a bit, would change things, right? It would then make it where a firm could look at only cities and, or, you know, that are tied to certain agencies as a way to work on these type of projects, right? Where they would be pushing for this. It would require, you know, in some ways, a coordinated effort. Like, you know, in my mind, if I think of, of the many things AIA could work on, this is an interesting opportunity, right? As to how do you get city agencies to adopt new workflows such that it provides better outcomes for not just the clients, but the communities as well, right? It could lead to shorter times in construction, right? Which could lead to shorter uh, periods of having excessive traffic in your neighborhood or, or whatever, right? It could, but that would be, uh, I mean, in, in my mind, something could be really fascinating, especially since as you identified, right? Like this is an area as part of, you know, if, if the city's not not involved intimately in this process, then it's almost like, like how do you even jump across that hurdle somewhere? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Well, I don't know that we would necessarily have the privilege to just like say, oh, I'm just going to work in the city, right? Because they're they're open to this. Obviously, like the client and the project and there's a lot of other drivers that, have, that apply here. But I mean, what's funny to me is that some cities that you would think are 
more open to to this like new ways of evaluating projects are actually pretty traditional. And so what I've seen is that some cities that that have a more tight relationship with uh, certain educational institutions um, like Pittsburgh because of uh, Carnegie Mellon or uh, Boston because of the Media Lab, those are starting to be a little bit more open to to the idea of it. So. Yeah, it's almost like any city that has a chief digital officer is probably a little bit more inclined. I mean, I think what I meant to say about the, yeah, you're right. Like it's not a it's like it's sort of a privilege, but it's actually also a marketing and a business development strategy, right? Like if you surveyed the landscape and like digital and like starting from the very beginning, which will tie into my next question about what would you do if you started a firm for yourself. But, you know, you could start from from, let's say first principles, right? It's like map out like where obviously you're tied to, the city that you live in in some ways, right? But the nature of work is such nowadays remote that you could potentially assemble teams that work in different states, different cities and municipalities. So the idea that you could like start from the very beginning and like target, you know, okay, I want to work. I want to figure out how to get a project in Pittsburgh, right? Because we know that they'd be more interested in what we're trying to do here. That, that's where I'm sort of trying to get at. It's like, if you started from the very beginning, it might be a way to let you know as a, as a company where you want to focus uh, your efforts. Right. Yeah. 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 So that leads to my question of like, if you sort of taking all the, your time at shop and all the lessons you learned, obviously there's not an advertisement for you to leave shop. I'm not saying that at all. I know you're very happy there, but if you were to, to kind of, I always think this is a question because it makes you really think deeply about like, oh, how, how would I do things if I did it differently to start? So if you did, if you were to start a firm today, it could be focused on anything you want. I mean, but I'm just very curious on what are the things that you would instill, whether it's from values, perspective, mission, what are the things that you would care about early on that you would want to make sure were always there in any project that you were doing? Okay. So, um, I mean, definitely a lot of what I talked about in terms of like team structure and uh, kind of like transparency of uh, goals and, you know, like clear ways of communication. I think that that's so important for, for the team to work well in terms of like space itself, you know, like what does the firm look like? That is said, but in terms of like how you organize the firm and the space, I think the most successful things at uh, shop that I would love to apply would be creating the space to explore. So, um, you know, like what, what I described in terms of all of this VR, AR rooms, but also space for uh, model making. Like in, in our case, we have, we have a shop in Brooklyn uh, with like a wood shop and welding capabilities, uh, robot arm. But then we also have a pretty extensive uh, fab lab within the office, which is great because then it allows everyone in the teams to like go downstairs and make a model and, you know, just like have that available. I think that's really important because we, we keep kind of like harnessing and exploring those digital platforms and use them as tools to ultimately like help the whole construction process be more efficient, but also, you know, like add a lot of value and really focus on the things that matter more in the project as opposed to just like the inefficiencies of the typical setup. But ultimately we, we still like to get our hands dirty and like make bottles and mm. like see what it feels like, looks like. And so like having that's the space to do that, it's very important. We have this thing called shop you, 
and um, it's top university. And so it's an opportunity for anyone that wants to teach a class to do so. And so it doesn't have to be necessarily like architecture related. I mean, there's things like intro to robotic programming or like how to render an Enscape more, you know, but then there are things that are totally unrelated, like how to make kimchi or like how to taste wine like a badass or, you know, like, and, and it's really fun because it's, it's another way to bring morale to the office and to uh, also like it, you spend a lot of time with your, within your own team, but to like get closer to other people in other teams, this is uh, a great way to do it. And I guess the last thing is we have at the center of shop is that the plan is a U shape. And so the center we call the equator and there's this table with a um, coffee over on one side and beer on the other. And then uh, some uh, pool tables and a ping pong table. And so this space is just amazing because it brings everyone together. So that's I, cool. Definitely, yeah. In terms of like space planning. Those are what you described is like the having a almost a healthy balance of being both in the ether of the digital world, but also in the tactile uh, physical world with model making. It's fascinating too, because like the, there's actually a loop that, I mean, you can eat very much easily like, like 3d scan those physical models, right. And bring them into the digital world. So like the workflows that exist today can actually unify both in a way that makes sense. Right. Cause you could be a lot faster putting together concepts um, using physical materials and trying to get to like other aspects that can be translated into the digital in, in a really clean way. So um, really, thank you. I appreciate that for those answers. Um, we have some questions that we'll try to address here. First one, does the Tranquility workspace in shop have anything to do with the Apollo 11 mission where Tranquility Base was the geographic region on the moon where the lunar lander landed for the first time. Yeah, actually, the, the name was, was inspired by um, both that specific module and also the Sea of Tranquility. So, yeah, definitely. Nice. Uh, if this were shop trivia, this person would have... Yeah, wins. <laughs> would have nailed it. Um, of all of your projects you've worked on at shop, which is your favorite design and why? That's really hard to answer because they're all so different. I would say like working on the timber tower was amazing because of the new, uh, the new material. Uh, you know, at that point, not a lot of people were working with uh, CLT, with uh, mass timber systems, in, at least in the States at that scale. So it was, it was awesome from that sense, but also the scale, it was like 40,000 square feet. So it was a very manageable scale and you could kind of like understand all the pieces of the project. And, but, you know, like ultimately the, the pavilion was just so fun because we explored a new method, a new material. Like we formed this partnerships with the uh, fabricators and we built it ourselves. Like we just had a team of shoppers, a team of people from the fabricator teams and another team from like Design Miami uh, staff. And even some of our family members came and joined us. So it was like, it was a pretty cool uh, way for everyone to like participate in this. And then just seeing the space being used and uh, enjoyed that week was great. But ultimately just the afterlife that it's had, I think it's, uh, you know, a testament to how like these new technologies can be used to also like teach in remote areas and mm. 
So yeah, I would say like between both of those. I, but I'm getting, I mean, I love my current project and I, and Fulbright was uh, also a great, great design opportunity. We're, we're a little bit over time, but we'll answer this uh, last question here. Into what level of construction details? So what, at what level of, of detail do you work on in construction drawings at shop? What do you involve shop drawings? I guess, yeah, what's the, in the digital design part, like what is that? I think we, we, off screen, we talked a little bit about this too. It's just like, at what level of resolution do you get to with a project in, where like it's easily, it can be handed off to somebody to develop it. And you had mentioned in our conversation something about like, you know, even having uh, construction ready documents by um, schematic design or, or something like that. Oh yeah. So no, I mean, when, when I, when I mentioned schematic having like pretty detailed documents, I was referring specifically to the timber project because since it was new, we worked like pretty closely with the structural engineers to figure out all of the components. And so, you know, it got to a level of resolution that in SD, you know, it was, it was like way beyond for SD. So, but it's not like we produce construction documents during SD. The question specifically in terms of like um, how much construction documents we do and um, and how much we get involved in that process. So we're actually, we're architecture record for, for most of the projects. And so we, I mean, in the, in the ethos of this whole involvement and in, uh, in like kind of like taking control in a way, uh, like we, we love being involved in, uh, in all the way through construction because it also, you know, like it might be seen as, as risk in some ways, but at the same time, it gives us a lot of design freedom and control. And so uh, making sure that those, like the tracking of, of the of the elements, whether it's like a facade or whatever else, like that is tracked all the way to delivery and uh, actually install, it's, it's important to us. And a lot of the tools that we have developed allow us to do that. So... For instance, like we were able to like go to an active site, an active construction site uh, with an iPad kind of like scan and overlay the drawing that's supposed to be uh, getting built. Uh, or if it's already on their way, we can track and see if there's anything that needs to be fixed. And so we are able to um, address issues become, before they become actual problems. So, you know, I think that's one of the big benefits of, of getting involved to that level of detail. That's great. Um, thank you for that. I'll have my own two questions. Um, one is, and I think you might have already answered this. Actually, I'll, I'll just ask my last question, which is part of the lightning round, which is maybe not threatening for it. What is the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? <laughs> oh, man. That's hard. I have so many. We get so many different. We've gotten a wide range of answers. One was very emotional, which was very, it was very moving. Yours doesn't have to be moving, but it, it can range from personal to professional. Well, I guess, um, so I'm originally from uh, Colombia. And in, you know, in the 90s, things were kind of like pretty turmoil in, in my city. And so uh, in terms of, you know, like economics and uh, politics and the business that my parents had, actually there was, there was a, 
this beautiful sculpture next to it by Fernando Botero, who's a Colombian artist. And the some of the guerrilla groups actually put a bomb there. And so the visit my parent uh, had was, you know, thankfully nobody was hurt, but, you know, like we, we kind of like had to start from scratch. And so they said, well, if we're going to start from scratch, we might as well, like, go to the States and explore something new and, you know, like offer our kids a new opportunity to do something. So we came here and um, without really anything. And uh, I mean, we had family, but not in Florida. So uh, I think the kindest thing is the risk that uh, they took in order to improve our lives. And, you know, like now that I look back at photos of that time, I realized like they, you know, like they, they had three kids and now that I have my own kids, I'm like, wow, that's just a huge move to improve the life of your kids. So that I would say that's probably the kindest thing that somebody has done for, for me and really for my, my siblings is, you know, having given us the opportunity to be here and just really, you know. Yeah. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank, thank you for sharing that story. That's really beautiful. And, uh, timely in some ways, which is great. Yeah, thank you so much, Lisa. Uh, this has been a really, really insightful conversation. It's been great to know more about how, you know, your role at, at shop, all the kind of different products you've been working on, the uh, amazing insights you've picked up along the way and sort of revealing a little bit more about how, how things work, right? How at, at a company like shop. So um, appreciate it. I appreciate it. Of course. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to Keep watching the next ones. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lisa. Talk soon. Thank you. Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.